Last summer, my family and I took a vacation to Colorado. We left in the pre-dawn hours and we ate breakfast just across the state line and then followed seven mind-numbing hours of driving across the barren grasslands of Kansas before we finally crossed into the arid plains of eastern Colorado. My children had never seen the mountains before, and I had been trying for months to provide for them an accurate description, but that had failed miserably. Susanna, for instance, was terrified that we were all going to fall off a mountain, and so she kept insisting that I would hold her hand the entire time we were in Colorado. Isaac wondered aloud how we were going to be able to stand on the top of the mountains when the mountains come to these sharp peaks like they did in his five-year-old imagination and like he drew them on his pictures. And so it was with great excitement driving on US 24 between Lyman and Colorado Springs that we caught our first glimpse of the front range. And as we drew nearer to those majestic peaks and as those peaks grew larger upon the horizon stretching from north to south, across the landscape, they were just absolutely enthralled. From our perspective, particularly from the perspective of my children who had never before seen the Rockies, it might have appeared as if there was just one range of mountains on the horizon. But as we drew closer to Colorado Springs, and then especially as we climbed Highway 24 up to Woodland Park, it became apparent that what from a distance had seemed to be a single mountain range was in fact layer upon layer upon layer of mountain ranges as far as the eye could see. And so it is with biblical prophecy. Over and over again, what appeared to the prophets as a single future event turned out to have multiple fulfillments within the history of redemption, with each fulfillment being a part of the whole, just like each individual mountain range makes up the whole of the Rocky Mountains. This phenomenon is known as the prophetic perspective. Now, to illustrate what I mean, I want to show you two of the more prominent examples of the prophetic perspective arising from the Old Testament. All right, number one, I want us to look at Isaiah's prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet foresees a time when the light of salvation will shine upon a people who walk in darkness. This light, we come to find out, will take the form of a child, a son of David, in fact, who will also be God incarnate and will reign over an everlasting kingdom forever. Isaiah 9 and verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it forever with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right? So Isaiah in chapter 9 foresaw that God would bring the light of salvation to his people by means of an infant son, a son of David, who is also the everlasting father, that is, he is God incarnate, who will establish an everlasting kingdom of justice and righteousness. That alone must have just blown Isaiah's mind. But then later in Isaiah's life, comes another prophecy of salvation which is radically different in its tone. It doesn't have this majestic, triumphant feel about it. No longer are we talking about a king who reigns. Now Isaiah sees a servant who suffers. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is very different than the triumphant portrait found in Isaiah 9, isn't it? So how do these two messianic prophecies and a multitude of others like them, especially in the second half of the book of Isaiah, how do they fit together? Is the Messiah going to be a triumphant king? Or is he going to be a suffering and dying servant? Will the Messiah establish an everlasting kingdom of justice and righteousness and power and peace? Or is he coming primarily to save his people from their sins? Well, both of these prophecies of salvation are fulfilled not in two Messiahs, but in one Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this one Messiah whom Isaiah saw on the prophetic horizon, actually comes twice. He appeared the first time as a child born to a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, as a man of sorrows, as a suffering servant who would bear the sins of his people and suffer and die for their justification. And he will appear a second time as the conquering king, the son of David, who will establish and uphold an everlasting kingdom of justice and righteousness. So what appeared to Isaiah from his perspective eight centuries before Jesus was born is actually two events. Or perhaps better, one event that comes in two stages, both of which are vitally related to the saving work of Christ. It's the prophetic perspective. The same thing can be seen with regard to the prophecies concerning the day of the Lord. In Old Testament prophecy, the day of the Lord refers to a great climactic act of God in salvation and judgment. For instance, in Joel chapter 2, we read, 
And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will make wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So what does Joel see when the Lord reveals from this prophecy? He sees a great day of the Lord's salvation, a great day of the Lord's judgment, a day that is accompanied by celestial phenomena, the moon turned to blood, the sun darkened, rivers and blood of, rivers of blood and fire and columns of smoke. He sees, he sees all of these eschatological, climactic events. But when we get to the New Testament we find that the day of the Lord is not, in fact, one future day, but rather refers to an age inaugurated by the first coming of Christ and consummated at His second coming. That's why Peter, in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, quotes this entire passage from Joel chapter 2 and says, this prophecy of Joel concerning the day of the Lord, it is now fulfilled in your hearing. It's now. So according to Peter, the day of the Lord dawned at Pentecost when the Lord was crucified, raised, ascended into heaven, and sent forth his spirit. The Apostle Paul thinks the same way because he quotes from Joel 2.32 in Romans 10.13 when he says, for all who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is now in this present age. So according to Peter and Paul, this is the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord's salvation. This is the day of the Lord's judgment. But Jesus himself in Mark 13, and the book of Revelation in Mark 6 and 16, they take Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2, and they apply it to the time of Christ's second coming, when he returns to bring salvation to his people, judgment upon the wicked, to dissolve this present creation, and to recreate a new heavens and a new earth. So which one is it? Did the day of the Lord occur when Christ came the first time, or when Christ ascended and sent the Spirit, or when Christ comes again. Joel only saw that as one event, but from the perspective of fulfillment, we see that all of them properly belong to the category of the day of the Lord. We find the same thing going on in Malachi chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. 
you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Again, clearly Malachi considered this day of the Lord to be a final day of salvation and judgment, which has reference to Christ's second coming. But Jesus himself identified John the Baptist as the Elijah who was to come, which would have reference to Christ's first coming. So which one is it? Which one is the day of the Lord? Answer, both. When when is the day of the Lord of which the prophets spoke? The answer is that what the prophets saw as one future event is really several events which are all connected by the coming of Christ. The day of the Lord dawned with the first coming of the Christ, and it will end with the second coming of Christ. Now, understood from this prophetic perspective, the day of the Lord looked like one event, like the mountains from the distance. But from within the time of fulfillment, from within the mountains, so to speak, we can say, see that there are multiple fulfillments, like when we were inside the Rocky Mountains, we could see that there were multiple ranges. This is the nature of biblical prophecy. It is a layered landscape. In other words, we live in the day of the Lord's salvation and judgment. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. We live in the last days. 1 John 2, 18. We are those upon whom the end of the age has come. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and 1 Peter 4, 7. Now, this understanding of the layered landscape of biblical prophecy has supreme relevance for our understanding of Mark chapter 13. Because some interpreters read this chapter and its parallels in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and understand it only in future terms related to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But as we read Mark 13, we'll see that that doesn't make sense of some of the things that Jesus says, like, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That can't be referring to the end of the age. Well, likewise, other interpreters read Mark 13, and they only understand it in historical terms, in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in the year 70. But that doesn't work with some other things that Jesus says in this chapter. For instance, with regard to the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds with power and great glory. See, a better way to understand Mark 13 is, is in the same manner that we understood those prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah and the coming day of the Lord. That is, as the foretelling of one great eschatological, that is, end times event that has multiple related fulfillments within that one event. In other words, I think Mark 13 is speaking primarily of the tribulation and the judgment that will fall upon Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70, okay? 
But at the same time, it telescopes beyond that single event to the tribulation and judgment that will accompany the return of Christ on the last day. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is a foreshadowing of that destruction which will come upon the whole world at the end of the age. And in between those two great acts of judgment, it encompasses this entire age of tribulation. Therefore, exhorting and encouraging and giving wisdom to all believers who live in between the two comings of Christ, in between these two great acts of judgment, living in these last days, Days of tribulation. So the point of this discourse, whether you are a Jewish Christian living in, say, 66 AD in Jerusalem, or whether you're a Gentile Christian living in Nixa in 2018, is shown in the repeated exhortations that Jesus gives throughout this chapter. Be on your guard, verse 9 and 33. Be alert, verse 33. Stay awake, 35 and 37. Persevere to the end, verse 13. Now, I think that we can see this structure of Mark 13 emerging even from the first four verses which provide the context for the entire discourse. So look with me at verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When Jesus speaks these words, it's Wednesday evening of Passion Week. Jesus has spent all day with the various members of the Sanhedrin in the temple like we've studied over the last couple of weeks. The sun is setting, and it's time for him to depart the temple to leave the city one last time for Bethany, where he's been spending every evening with his disciples. As they leave the temple, one of his disciples draws his attention to the architecture of the temple, which was, admittedly, magnificent. During his reign, King Herod the Great had undertaken to greatly expand the existing temple, the second temple, which had been originally completed in the year 516 under the reign of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. But by the time of Christ, this reconstruction of that temple had been going on nearly 50 years, and it would go on another 35 years after Jesus. But what was finished was absolutely breathtaking in its scope. It was a, it was a wonder of the ancient world. The entire temple structure now measured some 325 meters wide by 500 meters long. That's a circumference of nearly a mile. This accounted for an enclosure of about 35 acres or 12 football fields. The southeast corner of the temple overlooked the Kidron Valley, some 15 stories below. The retaining wall for the temple mount was constructed of stones that really defy imagination. There are stones near the existing foundation which can still be seen today 
which are estimated to measure 42 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, and weigh over a million pounds. I mean, it was phenomenal. And that was just the foundation. Along the south end of the temple complex was the royal portico, 45 feet wide, consisting of three aisles supported by four rows of columns that rose 40 feet into the air and supported a a cedar-paneled ceiling. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus records that each column was wide enough that it would take three men clasping outstretched arms just to encircle it. And of course, the crowning jewel of the temple was the white marble sanctuary, 50 meters wide at the entrance and 50 meters tall, covered in gold and silver, crimson and purple, radiating like the rising sun, or radiating in the rising sun like a snow-clad mountain, writes James Edwards. It is not hard to understand how these fishermen and farmers from Galilee were awestruck. It was an awe-inspiring building. But there's one person in this entourage who is not impressed, and that's Jesus. Jesus was there when the foundations of the earth were laid, and he's not impressed with big rocks. Jesus was the one who spoke the stars into existence, and he's not impressed with a gilded sanctuary that rises 150 feet in the air. When the disciples looked upon the temple, they were overwhelmed by the glory of what man could accomplish. But when Jesus looked upon the temple, he saw a man-made structure from which the glory of God had departed. The disciples saw a temple of God. Jesus saw a tower of Babel. And he predicted its utter destruction. Do you see these great buildings? I tell you, there will not be left one stone here upon another that will not be thrown down. And this prophecy was fulfilled 40 years later in the year 70 AD when the Roman general and later the Roman Caesar, Titus, and his legions destroyed Jerusalem, raising it to the ground. Titus had originally wanted to preserve the temple because of its magnificence, but when fire broke out in Jerusalem and the temple started to be destroyed... He dictated that the entire temple should be torn down one stone from the next. Now we're going to return to the discussion of the destruction of the temple next week, especially as we look at verses 14 to 22. When Jesus and his disciples reach the summit of the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sits down and he watches, quite symbolically I might add, the sun set upon the temple. His four earliest and closest disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, come to him and privately ask him regarding the timing of the prediction that he has just made. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Well, the these things to which they're referring are in context the destruction of the temple that he's just prophesied. And so I think it's appropriate, as we seek to understand what Jesus says in Mark 13, to think primarily of the events of A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But we also need to understand that for first century Jews, like the disciples to whom Jesus spoke, the destruction of the temple and the end of the world 
had to be one and the same event. They could not conceive of a world in which the temple was destroyed stone by stone and Jesus wasn't coming back to reign forever. In other words, I doubt very seriously whether Peter, James, John, Andrew, or any of the other disciples who heard Jesus' prediction of Jerusalem's destruction would have conceived of a scenario in which the destruction of the temple did not mean the end of the world. At least they couldn't have conceived of that before Christ was raised from the dead. We, on the other hand, we have the perspective of 2,000 years and counting of history since Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed and still Christ has not returned. They didn't have the same benefit. They could not have envisioned this lengthy delay before Christ's return, lengthy in our eyes, but not in God's eyes. For them, Jesus' prediction of the temple's destruction was a prediction of God's judgment on the last day. And so when Jesus treats both topics together and kind of weaves them together in Mark 13, that presents no problem for his original hearers. It only presents a problem for us who have been waiting now for 2,000 years and counting for the return of Christ and the fulfillment of his promise. So let let me wrap this up and let me summarize three important points about the structure of Mark chapter 13 in Jesus's Olivet Discourse, all right? So here's what you need to know about the structure of the end of the age, not only for this week, but also for next week as we continue in Mark 13. Number one, the primary focus of this discourse, particularly of verses 5 to 23, is on the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, which occurred 40 years after Jesus predicted it. That's point number one. Jesus, especially in verses 5 to 23, is primarily, but not exclusively, speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Number two, yet the judgment of Jerusalem and the temple and the judgment which is coming upon the world at Christ's return are related. The one, the destruction of Jerusalem, being a type and guarantee of the second, the destruction of the world. And number three, the nearly 2,000 year and counting gap between those two events is known in biblical terminology as the last days, 1 John 2.18, or the end of the age, 1 Corinthians 10.11, 1 Peter 4.7, and it will be marked by all of the phenomena described in Mark 13. In other words, we live in the tribulation. The tribulation of the last days as we await the second coming of Christ in salvation and judgment. Now, look up here for a second. I am aware that this sermon has been rather technical up to this point. There's a sense in which that is unavoidable because Mark 13 is a technical passage of Scripture. But I do feel it was necessary in order to understand the immediate relevance that this chapter, namely all of it, has for us today. You see, Mark 13 doesn't just refer to a past period of tribulation prior to the destruction of Jerusalem 
as the historicists would say. If that were true, Mark 13 would have zero relevance for the church of the last 2,000 years or for us today. Neither, however, does Mark 13 only refer to a future period of tribulation just prior to the second coming of Christ, as the futurists say. If that were the case, Mark 13 would have no relevance for the church of the last 2,000 years and maybe not for us today. In other words, if we understand Mark 13 in the way that I've laid out for you so far... It is descriptive of the entire period between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. The destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the world. And everything in between has immediate relevance for the church of Christ at every stage of this delay. So Mark 13 is written to us to the church, living in these last days, in the days of tribulation, and it has one message for us. Be ready. Be on guard. Be watchful. Be faithful to the very end. And the way in which Jesus is going to build that perseverance, he's going to build that endurance into us, is to tell us what to expect during this age. So, having established the structure of the end of the age, okay, this present age between the two comings of Christ, what signs does Jesus say will mark the end of the age? Well, as we conclude this first part of the sermon, I want to try to look together at verses 5 to 13 in order to see four distinct signs of this present age of tribulation that Jesus warns us about ahead of time in order that we'll not be knocked off our balance when we see them occurring, in order that we can persevere through them and remain faithful to Christ. All right? The first sign that Jesus mentions is the presence of false prophets and false messiahs. Verses 5 and 6. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now Jesus' words could be understood to mean that false prophets will come in Jesus' name claiming to speak for Jesus, in which case it would be a reference to false prophets of all shapes and stripes and sizes who lead people astray by their false teaching and their false doctrine and their false promises. The history of the church has certainly had her fair share of these kind of false prophets. We've got our fair share now. Or, Jesus could be talking about false messiahs who will arise and proclaim themselves to be the second coming of Christ, and in so doing, lead many astray. I think that Jesus actually has both in view because later on in verses 21 to 23, Jesus is going to mention both of them together. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard, I have told you all things beforehand. It's a point of historical fact that in the years prior to the Jewish revolt that brought about the destruction of the temple, 
a number of false messiahs arose to lead Israel astray. The Jewish historian Josephus mentions two in particular. In the mid-40s, a man named Theodos, who's mentioned in Acts 5.36, he claimed the power to perform signs and wonders, including the power to part the Jordan River, and he led many astray. Josephus also mentions an Egyptian who claimed to be a prophet and deceived many in Israel. And right now, those who make such false messianic claims, they tend to lead fringe movements that attract few followers. Probably the most famous in recent memory would be David Koresh, right? He, didn't, he proclaimed himself to be the second coming of Christ, but not a whole lot of people followed after him. But I imagine that as the end draws nigh, we will see situations arise in which men claim to be the Messiah, and on the power of the signs and wonders which they perform, they will gain large followings, even from the midst of the visible church. I think this is spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which we'll see next week. In the meantime, before that happens... This present age will be marked by the prevalence of false teachers and false prophets who seek to lead astray with their false teachings, many within the church. That's what we need to be on guard against now. In fact, one of the reasons that I I tend to believe that the end is, is pretty near is because of the historically unprecedented ability of false prophets to peddle their message through Christian broadcasting and Christian television and Christian websites. It's against such false teaching that Jesus warns his followers, see that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So, church, living in these last days, we must be armed against such attacks of the enemy. But how do you arm yourself against false teachers? By sitting under true teachers. How do you arm yourself against false doctrine? By learning true doctrine. How do you guard yourself against false prophets? By listening to true prophets. How do you arm yourself against the words of false Christs? By listening to the words of the true Christ. This is why at this church we are so passionate about right doctrine, true theology, true preaching. It's because it matters. Jesus told us, be on your guard against false prophets and their false doctrines. And this is the way. What we're doing right now is how we fulfill Jesus' command to be on guard, to keep watch to stay alert. False teaching presents a clear and present danger in this age of tribulation, and we must arm ourselves with the truth. And that's what we do every Sunday morning, isn't it? We're here to arm ourselves with the truth. The second sign Jesus mentions is political unrest, verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Sounds like the 
rider on the red horse in Revelation 6, who was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another throughout this present age of tribulation. Even so, Jesus announces that this age will be an age of war and death and near constant political turmoil. Let me ask you, has that not proven true over the last two millennia? Just think of the last century. Just think of the 20th century. It was the bloodiest century by far in human history. You had World War I, which was falsely called the war to end all wars. Once we fight this war, war will never be needed anymore. It resulted in the deaths of 16 million people, both military and civilian, not to mention the 20 million who were severely wounded. And that doesn't include the 50 million people who died from the Spanish flu in the aftermath of World War I. What is that? 90 million people across the world who died in the matter of about five years? Well, then came World War II which claimed the lives of another 50 to 80 million people. In fact, the 20th century has been marked by nearly ceaseless wars and rumors of wars, from Korea to Vietnam to Iran to Iraq, from the Holocaust of Nazi Germany to the killing fields of Cambodia to the genocide in Rwanda. Nevertheless, Jesus assures us that though nations will churn in this ceaseless state of turmoil like the waves of a stormy sea, the end is not yet. In other words, this violent political unrest will mark the entirety of this age of tribulation. So, we shouldn't be caught off guard when it happens. That's why Jesus told us it would be so. The third sign Jesus mentions are natural disasters. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pangs. Natural disasters have been a part of human history ever since the fall. Paul reminds us in Romans 8.21 that catastrophes such as earthquakes, famines, volcanic eruptions, tornadoes, hurricanes, droughts, floods, all of these things are like contractions. Right? They're not active labor, but they are reminders that active labor is coming. For instance, in the 40 years between Christ's prediction of Jerusalem's fall and its actual occurrence, the Roman world experienced devastating earthquakes in Laodicea and southwest Italy and severe famines in both Judea and Rome. And all of those events would have been personally known and felt by Mark's audience living in Rome in the mid-60s. So, as we, the church, now 2,000 years later, we look back over 2,000 years and beyond of all just natural disasters churning all over the world, we should be reminded of two truths. Number one, these disasters do not mean that the end of the world is right around the corner. There has never been a time since the fall of man when creation has not been groaning in the pains of childbirth. That's why Jesus says these are the beginning of birth pangs. So don't become a doomsday prophet lest you be proven false to look at some 
enormous hurricane that devastates the Gulf Coast or a tornado that wipes out an entire town and say, "Eh, Jesus is right around the corner. He may be, he may not be, you don't know. And Jesus says these are but the beginning of birth pangs so that you would see them as one contraction in a long line leading towards delivery. Don't be a false prophet. More on that next week. Number two, these disasters, however, are a sign and a guarantee of Christ's return. Just like contractions are a sign and guarantee that the delivery is coming. Then the fourth sign. The final sign of the times which Jesus mentions is the persecution of the church. The proclamation by the church of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations and the perseverance of the church in the faith and mission of Christ. Verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." Have you counted that cost as being a part of your life? This message is getting long, so I'm going to try to wrap this point up, and this is where we'll begin next week as we delve into part two of this sermon. What I want to draw out of these verses as we close is that perhaps better than any other passage in Mark 13, they illustrate that layered landscape of biblical prophecy that I mentioned earlier. Every prediction that Jesus makes in verses 9 to 13 can, in a sense, be seen as fulfilled in the 40 years between Christ's prediction and Jerusalem's destruction, and they mark the entirety of this age. The book of Acts, for instance, is the record of the persecution, proclamation, and perseverance of the church. For instance, Peter and John were delivered over to the Sanhedrin, The councils in Acts 4 and 5, Stephen in Acts 7, and Paul in Acts 23, just like Jesus said. Think about the book of Acts and ask yourself, in how many synagogues was Paul beaten or stoned? Paul testified before the governors Felix and Festus, the king Agrippa, and eventually before Caesar himself. You will stand before kings and governors for my sake to give testimony to them. And Paul testified in Romans 15.23 that there was nowhere else for him to work in these regions, speaking of the Roman world from Jerusalem around to Illyricum, such that he needed to go all the way to Spain in order to preach the gospel where Christ had not yet been named. In other words, at least by AD 60, the gospel had been preached to every nation in the Roman Empire. And yet, none of those phenomena that Jesus says will mark this age persecution, proclamation, or perseverance ceased with the destruction of the temple because all of those realities continue to mark this entire age between the two comings of Christ. The past 2,000 years is a history of the church's often violent persecution, 
the proclamation of the gospel to the very ends of the earth and the perseverance of the saints through family betrayal, verse 12, and the hatred of the world, verse 13. And so it will continue unto the end. This is why Jesus has one exhortation in this message, which he repeats multiple times in multiple ways. And here it is. Here is the word of Christ for you, the church, living in these last days of tribulation. Be ready. In the face of false prophets and false teaching, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 5. In the face of political unrest, do not be alarmed. Verse 7. In the face of persecutions, be on your guard. Verse 9. As we'll see next week, Jesus says that he's told us all things ahead of time so that we won't be caught off guard, but rather we'll persevere in faith through this age of tribulation and all of the turmoil that it brings. But there is one thing that he has not told us, and that is when he will return. He's told us of what this age will consist, right? False prophets, false messiahs, political unrest, natural disasters, persecutions. But he hasn't told us when this age will come to an end. Why? Because he wants us to remain vigilant throughout. You do not know the hour when your master returns. So how are you going to be found faithful? Guard yourself from false doctrine. Don't be caught off guard when nation rises against nation and the politics of your own land crumble to the dust. Don't become a false prophet and and go off on some strange tangent when natural disasters arise. You just keep being steady and faithful and preaching the gospel to your neighbors and the nations. And don't do anything that would drag you away from faithfulness to Christ. That's where I'm going to leave it for this morning, with this promise. Your job is to persevere through this age with the information that Jesus has given you. However, your perseverance is not ultimately owing to your own strength of will, but to God's determined purpose to keep you faithful. I think this is the point of Jesus' promise in verse 11. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. That's the promise I leave you with this morning. Throughout this tribulation, throughout the false prophets, the false messiahs, throughout the political unrest, throughout the natural disasters, throughout the persecutions that will assault the church in every age, the Holy Spirit will be with you, keeping you, guiding you, speaking through you, holding you fast to Christ. Jesus even hints of it in the passage we'll look at next week when he says that the false prophets, they arise so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But it's not possible. Why? Because he will hold you fast. Be assured that in your life you will have tribulation, but 
John 16, 13. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You can trust him in your tribulation. 